0: Welcome back to Born Curious. I'm Lisa Estrada. I'm Heather Min. In this episode, we have the chance to speak with Asfa Majid, who is a professor of cognitive science at the University of Oxford, where she studies the relationship among language, culture, and the mind. As the 2022 to 2023 William Bentinck
1: Smith Fellow Asfa is writing a book to shed light on the aspects of cognition that are inherently universal and those that are influenced by language
0: or culture. Welcome, Asfa.
2: Thank you. Excited to be
0: here to talk to you guys. I'm going to start with a real basic question. What first got you interested in language?
2: Yeah, I grew up uh, bilingually. Uh, My parents spoke Punjabi at home, um, and their friends spoke English. My earliest memories are going from one of my mum's friends who'd said something to English and coming to my mum and touching her face and telling her in Punjabi what had just happened. So I knew different people had access to different languages. And as I got older, talking to friends in English, there were some things that just seemed impossible to get across. There were concepts that you could maybe find a translation for but it didn't quite capture the original meaning and so yeah so those initial thoughts were there but i didn't know you could study this so it wasn't something you know we didn't learn anything about different languages at school when i went to university in glasgow we had a psychology of language we had the philosophy of language and it was all in english and if i asked questions about other languages at that time there wasn't much interest So, you know, there was kind of a vaguely dismissive attitude. It was, you know, language was universal and whatever you find in English would appear in other languages. Um, And it wasn't until I'd finished my PhD that I discovered that there was a research institute in the Netherlands that was dedicated to the study of different languages. And when I found that out, I just, I knew I had to go there.
1: What do they do? Do they do comparative um, studies? How is it different from what you were exposed to in university?
2: Well, sadly, uh, the group that I went to work with doesn't exist anymore. So I went to work at a Max Planck Institute and they had a director, Steve Levinson, whose whole department was focused on documenting endangered languages at the time. And so it was a really special place. There were lots of uh, linguists who were doing documentation work. So going to lesser described languages all over the world, coming back with data with the goal of writing grammars, um, creating multimedia texts and giving back to communities. So there's kind of on the one hand, just basic documentation work with the view of preserving this aspect of human culture. And then... I was there kind of taking part in large comparative studies. So when you're documenting each individual language, they're each unique and beautiful in their own right. But at the same time, we want to capture whether there are any universals or whether something is unusual from a comparative perspective. And so part of my goal was trying to figure out ways to collect comparative data where you weren't just um, applying things from English and seeing, you know, where other languages fail, but rather kind of trying to capture what what was unique about each language in its own right.
1: Could you explain uh, what you mean by document? Uh, because listening to you, it sounds like there's some anthropology involved. Mm. You think languages, you think uh, linguists. So what do you mean by document?
2: It, language is structured. So when linguists are trying to document a language, they want to describe the sound system of the language. So what are all of the unique sounds uh, that you use in order to build words? So then you want to build a lexicon of the words. But of course, then each word isn't completely unique. So if you think about something like give and gave, so both of those are related. There's a sound change in the middle of the word. Um, It's irregular, but they still capture the same meaning. So you want to capture these sorts of regularities, like walk walks we can add s onto a bunch of verbs but also these irregular aspects of the lexicon and that kind of brings us on to the grammar so you want to figure out how do you combine words in such a way that it makes sense to your addressee it doesn't finish there so we also have ways of structuring sentences to create stories or discourses longer texts and in conversation, there's rules about how we should talk. You know, what, what are the interactional routines when we give things? So in English, I can ask you for something, you know, can I please have, you know, and you give it to me and I say, thank you. So there's a please and a thank you. But other languages might have a more expanded routine there. So when I was in the Netherlands, there's a three-part routine rather than a two-part routine. It's not just please and thank you, but there's kind of like a, you're welcome. And if you don't say that last part, you're being rude. So we have to learn all of these aspects and that's kind of what we're trying to capture. Um, So on the one hand, we have these ideas that there's certain kinds of things that should appear in all languages. On the other hand, you'd hope that we're making those um, generalizations on the basis of real data. So if you think about what are the sound systems I talked about, it's one way of talking about the fact that there's structures that you can build words from. So if you speak a signed language, for example, not a spoken language, then it's not going to be sounds that are the ground basis from which you're making words. So when you're documenting a language, you're trying to capture these regular patterns, the sounds, the words, the grammar, discourse, you know, all of these aspects of um, what it takes to be a fully functioning speaker or listener in this community. (laughs) And this, this
0: seems like quite the monumental task. I mean, as background for our listeners,
2: how many languages are currently spoken around the world? So if you look in the literature, you'll find different estimates. So it can be somewhere between 6,000 and 8,000. And that's because we don't have a complete record of all of the languages in the world. So we're kind of guesstimating in parts. A language like English, which has, you know, almost more than a billion speakers, if you include all the second language speakers as well. Um, That's unusual. So most languages are only spoken by a few hundred or thousands, tens of thousands of people. And if you go from village to village, there'll be differences. But some of those differences might be small. So there are dialectal differences, if you like. So, for example, I'm speaking a slightly different English than you guys are, um, or an American English speaker would speak. So some of them are dialectical where we'd still say it's the same language, but others are more substantive. So linguists use the criteria of mutual intelligibility. So if I say something, even if my sounds are a bit different to the ones that you might use, if you can still understand me, then we'll say this is one language that we're speaking. And so the further apart two speakers get in being able to understand one another, the more likely we are to say that there's two languages. But that kind of breaks down. So if you think about something like, Norwegian and Danish and Swedish. We know that there's a kind of a climb, There's some understanding between speakers of these varieties, but we still say that they're separate languages. So that's a kind of fuzzy part of figuring out where is a language, where is a dialect, but using the best criteria that we have, we think there's around 7,000 languages today. And one thing that from hearing you speak before that really struck me is
0: when you said that one language goes extinct every three months. And that rate is accelerating and that 40% of existing languages are completely undescribed. That blew my mind.
2: Yeah. It's just a sad state of affairs, really. I mean, I think there's both a kind of human cost and a scientific cost. So if we're thinking about the science, we know that each language seems to capture unique information. Um, A really nice study from a a year or so ago showed documented uh, indigenous languages um, in major areas of the world and specifically looked at the biological knowledge encoded in each of these languages. So what um, animal and tree and plant species were encoded in each of those languages. And what they found was that each language has unique information about the biological world. And when we start thinking about climate change and sustainability, that becomes pretty compelling as another reason that these small scale or indigenous languages are important to us. So you have communities that have been living in the same place where people have in-depth knowledge about the landscape around them and the ecosystems around them and also medicinal knowledge about how to use plants for example so many indigenous cures and yet with the loss of each language or shift away from lifestyles to a more kind of globalized english or maybe even urban environment that information goes so you lose that generational transmission and that's knowledge lost forever these languages aren't written it's not like we can recover that information there's a kind of compelling I believe scientific reason that we should be working with communities to figure out if communities want to stay in that place and keep their language alive how can we help do that on the other hand there's just the you know the real human reason you see that people who have been forcibly shifted away from their language so we know that Sadly, in the US and places like Australia, where indigenous communities were shifted off their land and young children were taken forcibly from their families so that they could learn the mainstream language. That generational trauma is still very present for people and there is a real sadness and grief at that loss of, you know, their uh, ancestral language and culture um, and people striving to connect with that again. So, and, you know, we should respect uh, and preserve people's right to live how they want.
1: In talking about
2: language extinction,
1: you are clearly uh, sharing that cultural anthropology and ethnography plays a role in thinking about languages. And so you look at cultures and the context in which Language is a part of unique, distinct cultures, and therefore we mourn
0: when those die out. So assuming that diversity of language is this incredible thing that, that we're looking for, what are some of the hotspots in the world? So it, it's been said that 800 languages are spoken in New York City. What,
2: what are the hotspots? So globally, the most different languages are spoken in Papua New Guinea. How many? Don't ask me that. (laughs) (laughs) But why? Uh, But Why not?
1: (laughs) Do they just, uh, are they very clannish and not
2: mingling uh, with their neighbours? People have suggested geographical explanations for this kind of linguistic diversity. So, you know, there's mountainous areas or it's an island. Uh, There are many different islands and so forth. But I think uh, you also have to think about this social conditions that allow for different languages to stay. And one of them is multilingualism. So people, there's many communities will speak each other's languages. It needn't be monolingual. So if you think about 19th century, 18th century uh, science (laughs) or writings, people were writing in German, Latin, English and reading each other's writings. But that's something that we seem to have lost. We've kind of focused in on just one language for every context. Um, so I think, again, it goes back to this issue of keeping multilingualism alive. And I'm sure the New Yorkers, whatever, however many languages there are, like they're doing likely their day-to-day business in the major language of, of the city.
1: In America, anyway, we've sort of claimed the world's cuisines.
2: As our own. Yeah, then we do the same with words. I you mean, know, we just, mm-hmm. English is just uh, sucked up. Yep. Along with, you know, colonial wealth. <laughs> All of the words to go with it, you know, kangaroo
0: or, you know. I've got a few from the Taino language. Hurricane. Very good. Tamek. Yeah. yeah. Avocado so. is an indigenous
1: Mexican mm-hmm. word. Um, also, I learned the other day galore is from Irish. So
2: amazing. So we do borrow, take, grasp. So some estimates say the English language has over a million words. An average English speaker has a personal vocabulary of 40,000. So most words in the English language, you don't know. You know, they are for a particular time, in a particular place, spoken by a specific community. They're not things that are part of everyday vocabulary. So that's why you have to separate out what does an individual know and what's there in the language as a whole. And those don't necessarily map one-to-one, especially for languages like English that have a history of writing, uh, where we can see all of the vocabulary that's ever been used, including things that have kind of disappeared from use right now.
1: So researchers need to catch up with the richer reality of lived experience, as it were, just to get us toward how a thought comes into play in language what do you study what do you uh do your research on and how do you introduce or think about thought along with language
2: so it's both a vehicle for capturing cultural knowledge and at the same time it's the tool with which we think so what exactly is the relationship between language and thinking can we think without language well exactly so <laughs> um begin with the idea that languages are packaging things in different ways and they are capturing unique knowledge specific to place and cultural background and so forth and it feels like it must be the main vehicle by which we think but that would lead us to a bit of a strange conclusion so if we think it's the only or primary vehicle by which we think It would make us um, believe that if you're a a young child who hasn't learned language yet, you don't have any thought. Or if you're an adult and you have a stroke and sadly lose your ability to talk because you've now got aphasia, you no longer can think. So those things don't seem quite right. And and also, you know, we are one species, but we know that we're uh, connected to the rest of the non-human animal species, and do we really want to say that a dog can't think, an elephant can't think? Um, That doesn't seem quite right. So psychologists have been trying to parcel out those aspects of our thinking that don't necessarily require language, um, and those aspects that do. And then it's trying to figure out, well, how do those connect? So do I first formulate a thought outside of language, and then I have to somehow get it into language? Or is language involved in how I'm formulating thought? Is it the case that uh, my thoughts are completely independent? When does language start influencing thinking? So these are all the kinds of questions that cognitive scientists try to answer.
1: Um, The way that you talk about it, where you delve into theory and philosophy, it makes me think, have psychologists
2: or modern social scientists not been studying this long i think people have been asking the question about the relationship between language and thought but focus primarily on english so you can ask the same questions for a young infant at what point do they have let's say concepts of color you know we know that young infants color vision isn't completely on board when they're born so they are developing their color vision but as adults, we have categories of blue and green and red and pink, even though colour is continuous. So we add in boundaries on this continuous spectrum and people have thought that might be due to language. And if that's true, then if we look at children, they shouldn't show evidence of categories until they learn the colour words in their language. So that that kind of raises the question, can we look at babies' colour vision and see if there's evidence for categories in there? Um, so these are the kinds of questions that we can ask and they are still relevant and there, even if you're looking at one language, the thing that the cross linguistic or cross cultural dimension opens up is that I think it opens up more possibilities for untangling. Some of the things that are difficult to untangle in one space. So for example, if I'm looking at the development of color in children and I'm doing these experiments in English. The children might not have the words yet when we're testing them. Let's say we can establish that separately, but they're in a coloured environment. So we develop artefacts, toys that maximally get children's attention. And those seem to be very well capturing our categories. So if you get, you know, a Fisher-Price toy that's got blue and green and red and you know, these very saturated colours. What the kids are getting as input is the parents playing with them and telling them, put the red square in the circle, you know, put the blue, let's put... Um, so you're getting these socialization routines where you, you've got a crafted visual environment going along with the language that's building these categories. But if we open up the window for cross-cultural studies, we can look at people in different visual environments who have vi- different visual diets. Somebody who lives
1: in the desert versus somebody who lives in the forest or somebody who lives up in the Arctic.
2: Exactly. And that way we can try and tease apart some of the cultural and linguistic factors that go along into developing these categories. And if you get just the right communities, you might even be able to tease apart the language versus visual environment factors. So that's why opening up the the window to these 7,000 different languages and very different environments, very different cultures. It's like a natural laboratory where you can try and tease apart some of the things that are almost impossible to do within a single cultural context. So it's a scientific opportunity.
1: So you work at the hotbed of nature versus nurture here. So what do you do? What's, What's your field of study?
2: All of what we've been talking about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What have you been working on this past year here at RACLA?
2: I've been trying to synthesize some of the studies that we've been doing over the last years. You know, as we talked about, language is complicated (laughs) and has many different aspects to it. And over, you know, the last 20 years of my work, I've been working... Uh, on capturing some of uh, these different semantic domains. Um, So I've worked on colour, on events like walking and running, or cutting and breaking, even ways to talk about the body. So we think, for example, the distinction between hand and arm is really obvious, but a third of the world's languages only have a single term to refer to the whole thing. Which are those languages? So Russian is one, Indonesian is another. And so if that's kind of interesting, you think, well, okay, if I don't make a lexical distinction between hand and arm, what are the implications of that? And there's some suggestive evidence that might matter for how we think about doing certain kinds of actions. So in the same way that we might not make a distinction between hand and arm, some languages don't make a distinction between foot and leg. And when you ask people, okay, when you kick, what do you kick with? If you ask um, an English speaker, they say, well, I kick with my foot. Uh, but of course it's silly because when you kick your whole leg is moving you're not just in contact with the foot but yet people focus on that where if you ask a speaker of a language that has a single term they're more likely to say you kick with the whole thing or if you get them to color in it's not just that they're saying foot and leg um, if you get them to color in, color in that part of the body that you use to kick um, you find these differences so I've been working on unpacking what the logic of these different semantic domains are. What's the range of variation? Are there recurrent patterns that we see? Where is a language or culture exceptional in what they're doing?
0: I'm wondering how you get
2: your ideas for these questions.
0: Does one investigation kind of give way to the next one? And then how how do you develop? How do you design the tests?
2: So I started working on events, and we were finding... Some recurrent patterns, but much more variation than I think the main community that I'm really a part of, the cognitive science community, recognised. So, you know, you have these different communities of researchers, the people that are working on cross-linguistic documentation know, suspect, or believe that there's every language is unique. And then you have another community that um, is more focused on finding kind of universals in language and thought. They're, they don't often, in the past at least, didn't speak very well to one another because they used different methods. Um, so, you know, descriptive, more qualitative versus quantitative, more experimental. And so part of my work has been trying to bridge um, those communities and do translation, kind of trying to get them to engage with one another. So when I started, it was kind of kind of quite high-level things and it kind of... Beg the question, so when you find variation in one place, people say, ah, but, you know, bodies, they must be universal because every, you know, that's, everybody has it and there are some things that we need to talk about. Um, so that led to that question and, and it's kind of over the years led to me looking at the basic building blocks of perception. So, you know, that was the colors and sounds and smells, um, are there universals there? Um, So some of these things come organically from having being in dialogue with other scientists. Some of it's natural curiosity, but I think that's why the synthesis felt important to figure out what's the most interesting thing to do next, you know, what would make the most impact.
0: And how do you not get overwhelmed just by the, you know,
2: just the sheer amount of how much there is to learn? Great question. Um, it's exciting. You get to pick and choose what you want to do. There's a freedom, you know, so if it means diving into some philosophy or, you know, learning about chemistry or... I think that that's, doesn't feel overwhelming to me. Well, Asaba, thank you so much for
0: your time so far. Thank you. Thank you both. We have exciting news to share due to the depth and richness of our conversation we've decided to split this episode into two parts. So please stay tuned for part two, where we'll delve even
1: deeper into language and cognition with our guest, Asfa Majid.
0: The Born Curious podcast is brought to you by Harvard Radcliffe Institute. Thanks for joining us. You can find Born Curious wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about Harvard Radcliffe Institute, visit radcliffe.harvard.edu.